Starting last Sunday, we began a short study on the early days of Apostle Paul, or formerly known Saul of Tarsus. Uh, after the sermon, uh, Sunday evening, uh, actually night, I usually walk and I reflect on the Sunday. And I was wondering and a little bit worried if the sermon was too informational. And then Monday, I received an email, and I'm sharing a part of it with a permission. Uh, someone said, Thank you, Pastor Paul, for breaking down the conversion of a soul. It was the first time for me to look under the hood of this uh, so familiar passage, which I have read many times before, to finally understand what was going through Saul's mind on how he latched on to God's grace, which I can model after, as well as uh, praying for my children to model after. That email was a timely affirmation, and I'm now encouraged to dig deeper into Saul's life and keep looking under the hood. Today, we will look into an obscure, almost a hidden part of Saul's early days as a Christian. I call it a bamak, bamak, bamak of a faith. What is a bamak? Let me show you. Bamak is the uh, other part of an iceberg. Iceberg consists of uh, two parts. Tip, which is a visible part above the water, and the bamak is the uh, invisible part, the below the water. As you know, tip of an iceberg is only one-seventh or one-eighth of its mass, and the rest of an iceberg is a bamak. Now, Likewise, everyone's faith is more than what we see on Sundays or Fridays. By the way, we should not underestimate the tip of a faith or the visible part of a faith at all. Especially in this pandemic, many people actually disappeared and became invisible and worse, I'm afraid, inactive followers of Christ. So we should not underestimate the visible you know, part of a Christian life. And while, while we appreciate this tip of a faith, but at the same time, we should also pay attention, perhaps more attention, to the bamak of a faith. What is a bamak of a faith? This is a base of a faith, like a foundation of a building, or the roof, a root, of a, a, a tree, where faith takes its root down deep in the soil called our heart. That's where the basic integration of a faith and life takes place. Today, I want to share one basic integration of a faith that every follower of a Christ goes through as we reflect on early Christian life of Saul of Tarsus or Paul. I'm going to use the Saul and Paul you know, uh, interchangeably, so bear with me, okay? So today we're going to look at the Saul's retreat to Arabia. All right. So let's pick up where we left last Sunday, Acts chapter 9, 20. Acts chapter 9, 20 says, At once he began to preach in the synagogue that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, 
Isn't he the man who raised a havoc on Jerusalem among those who call on this name? Hasn't he, come, hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priest? Now, last week, we saw Saul's conversion on the road to Damascus. Today, we see Saul in Damascus after he met Jesus. As soon as his spiritual blindness was recognized, and also his physical blindness was healed, and Saul was baptized by Ananias. Paul began, Saul began to preach the good news that Jesus was not a failed, false, rejected Messiah, but he was real Son of God. He was really, really the risen Son of God. So Saul the persecutor, who used to destroy Christians in Jerusalem and Judea and everywhere in Palestine, finally became the soul the preacher who unapologetically declares Christ to everyone. As the impact was huge. Look at the verse 22. Yes, Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by probing that Jesus is a Messiah. And after many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among Jews to kill him. Now, how many days are after many days? How long was Saul in Damascus? While the writer of the book of Acts looks as just many days, here in chapter 9, Saul was actually there in Damascus at least for three years, according to his first letter, Galatians. So let's look at the Galatians chapter 1 of 15. Uh, verse 15. When God, who sent me apart from my mother's womb and called me by His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me, so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went to, went into, where? Arabia. And later, I returned to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with the Cephas. Cephas is an Aramaic word for uh, Peter, the Simon Peter, another name for Simon Peter, and stay with him 15 days. Now, Paul was uh, describing here in the Galatians chapter 1, the first years of his uh, Christian life. Why? The context of a Galatian letter is this. Galatian Christians were questioning the legitimacy of Paul's apostleship because there were some, uh, Jewish, uh, some Jewish legalistic Christians who came from Jerusalem and uh, we call them uh, Judaizers because they're extremely uh, uh, ethnocentric Jewish uh, Christians. And they kind of discredited or discredited or discounted Paul's authority as a secondary or inferior apostle because he wasn't one of the uh, uh, original 12 apostles of Jesus. So Paul was uh, defending his apostleship here. And here Paul asserted this apostle, apostolic authority did not come from humans such as uh, Jerusalem apostles, but directly from God who set him apart even from his birth. The expression that God sent me apart from my mother's womb 
is a well-known Old Testament expression. When God called his prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah. So Paul was implying that like the prophets, I was called by God. And that's why instead of going to Jerusalem for human approval or validation, I received my validation, my commission from God. And for that, I went to Arabia. So that's why Saul went to Arabia. Now, Saul's trip to Arabia happened. So Acts chapter 9, 22, verse 9, 22 and 23. You know, Paul grew in power, more and more in power. And uh, many days, after many days. So during that time, that this, today's uh, Paul uh, traveled to Arabia. Now, let's ask one more time. Why did Paul go to Arabia? Many people think that Paul went there to preach. It was Paul's first evangelistic trip. And the term Arabia was abroad back then. Let's look at the map. If you look at the map, do you see, uh, yeah. One thing we, are, we know sure is that when Paul said Arabia, he did not refer to today's Saudi Arabia, okay? That's not what Paul meant by that, okay? And uh, if you look at the map over there, do you see Damascus? That's where Paul, you know, uh, uh, became, I mean, was baptized and ministering first time, yeah. And then there is a, a, Nabi, a Nabataean kingdom, right? And Petra, okay. At the time, there was strong Arabic uh, country called the Nabataean kingdom, whose uh, capital Petra, do you see the Petra over there? Yes. Uh, still draws many tourists and um, uh, movie makers. Some of you remember the uh, first uh, Indiana Jones adventure, the uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's where the, uh, the you know, uh, the, uh, the Petra was a film location. Now, where in Arabia did Paul go? And what did he mean by Arabia? Okay. Now look at me. Answer to that comes from another famous Jewish hero of faith who was also known for his zeal for God. And his name is Elijah Tishbite. Elijah Tishbite. Do you guys remember Elijah? Do you remember the brave prophet of Yahweh who single-handedly battled, challenged, and battled against the 450 Baal prophets and the 400 Asherah prophets on the top of the Mount Carmel and defeated them? Do you? I assume that you know that story, right? Okay, now. Do you know what happened to Elijah after the victory? That, that, that incredible uh, victory. Let's look at the uh, first King chapter 19. This picked up after the victory. First King chapter 19 verse 7, the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched Elijah and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by the food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into the cave and spent the night, and the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I have been very zealous 
For the Lord God Almighty, the Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophet to death with a sword. I'm the only one left. And now they are trying to kill me too. Now, let me explain what's going on here. After the great victory at the top of Mount Carmel, Elijah expected a great repentance, move, repentance movement in Israel. But what happened? Instead of a revival movement, he became a target of an evil, a tar, a, a target of an evil pagan queen Jezebel, and he has to flee for his life. So Elijah was very discouraged and then almost suicidal. And guess where God sent Elijah? Mount Horeb. Where is a Mount Horeb? What do you know about Mount Horeb? Mount Horeb was the, uh, another name of a Mount Sinai. So let's look at the map one more time. Can you look at the map? So do you see the Sinai on the tip of there? Right there? Yes. So Paul, uh, Saul or Paul went all the way to Arabia to the Mount, the southern tip of Sinai Peninsula, the Mount Sinai, or sometimes called the Mount Horeb. Now, according to Exodus chapter 3, this is where Moses heard God's call and commissioning uh, in the famous burning, burning bush you know, experience. And there, God gave Moses commission. And today, God is giving we Education and redirection to Elijah. Re-education and redirection to Elijah. For that, let's look at go back to the uh, uh, First King chapter nineteen, verse eleven. The Lord said, to, "Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by." Then a great powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came, in, came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire came, a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah replied, I've been very zealous for you, Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. Now they are trying to kill me too. Now, he's almost memorized this you know, same verse. And he's been kind of singing the song of uh, you know, depression to God now. At Mount Horeb, Elijah the Tishvite had a first theophany Experience, You know, theophany, that is, you know, seeing God face to face, like a Moses at the burning bush. And here, we must duly note the fact that God intentionally was absent or missing in the great powerful wind. I think it's more like a Texas tornado. Or the earthquake, the California San Andreas, you know, earthquake. Or fire, Colorado wildfire will, will come. 
that intentionally was absent in this spectacular, you know, uh, uh, natural event. But he intentionally revealed himself, his quiet presence in the gentle whisper. Why? Why did God reveal himself to Elijah in this way? You know, the answer comes from Elijah's own lips. Second time, Elijah said what? I've been very zealous for you, Lord God Almighty. Elijah was the first person in the Old Testament described himself confidently as a man of a zeal for Yahweh. A man with, a, with the utmost faithfulness and loyalty to God. Do you remember last week that Saul's role model was Phineas the priest who killed the unfaithful Israelite and the Moabite woman with a you know, single spear you know, piercing the Aeneas? Okay? And uh, if a Phineas was the first uh, zealous you know, priest uh, uh, for Yahweh, Elijah was the first zealous prophet for Yahweh. And all his life, Elijah was consumed with the zeal for the Lord, and he made a zeal for the Lord his meal. It's my pun. And uh, today, God is re-educating Elijah. Why? When, when you are zealous for God, when you are so passionate of God, you can easily over-assume your expectation to be God's will or even outcome. Because you gave 100% to God and you have a certain expectation. And then that expectation, not for your own ego, for God, glory of God in your own sincere heart. You know, that's the problem of a zeal or passion. Sometimes our zeal or passion has such a narrow single vision that it forgets the larger picture. You know, later Apostle Paul said in the Romans 10 too, that the Israelites were zealous for God, but their zeal was not based on knowledge. Their zeal was not based on knowledge. Zeal is good. But zeal without truth or knowledge of God, I have to tell you, can be very empty, frustrating, and even dangerous. So, Elijah had this great you know, expectation and didn't come through. And that's why he was struggling. And uh, so one thing God wants us to know about our own zealous expectation is this. Don't assume things will take, take place according to your zeal and your expectation. You need to submit your zeal your passion to my guidance and direction. You don't follow your zeal or expect me to follow your zeal and bless your zeal. You follow me with a zeal and I'm the one who will fulfill your zeal. Elijah expected God and his ministry in some spectacular ways like tornadoes, earthquakes and wildfire. And God was educating this zealous prophet today that God's way also can be silent and invisible like a gentle whisper. You know, our God is not always God of fire and rain, 
But again, many times our God is a God of gentleness, almost invisible kindness. So, that was a God was educating Elijah. I'm more than what you think. That's what God is saying. So when you are really passionate about God, it's good. You know, it's a I'm, it's a great thing to love God with a passion, but don't box God in your passion. God is bigger than your passion. God is bigger than your expectation. All right. God is much bigger than your passion and expectation. And then God gave the zealous and now frustrated zealous prophet a new direction in verse 15. So let's look at verse 15. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, the king of Aram, and anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king of Israel. And anoint Elisha, Elisha, son of Safat from Abel Mecholah, to succeed you as a prophet. Jehu will put to death anyone who escaped the sword of Hazariah, and Elisha will put to death anyone who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. Now, after God re-educated Elijah, the Lord gave him also redirection and assurance. He said, God said, I will punish and replace the Ahab and Jezreel, first with the Hezreel and then Jehu, and also if they skip all this, don't worry. I have uh, Elisha ready for them too. And then when Elijah said, I'm the only one left, God said, once again, you don't see everything. I have, I reserved the 7,000. Then, you know, it's expression. God is saying that I have many, many more than, you know, you. You're not the only option that I have. I have many, 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 you know, others who are secretly serving me. So brothers and sisters, because my plan for God didn't work, that doesn't mean God failed to work. Amen? God is uh, omniscient, omnipotent. God is a multi-resourceful. God is a God of surprises. God can surprise us, especially when we fail. That's a great thing about failing. Because when in your spiritual journey, when you sense, when you feel fail, when you experience failure, this is a time to be surprised by God of grace. Yes. So now Saul of Tarsus, he began to see his life and zeal for the Lord, just like Elisha. Just like Elijah, he was go to Damascus and declare that God anointed a new king for everyone. And that king is who? Jesus of Nazareth, the crucified, but risen son of God. N.T. Wright said about this story in this way. Let me just quit quickly. As the law given to Moses on Mount Sinai, a new mission given to Elijah, Saul was starting to come to terms with the possibility that even divine purposes, if divine purposes has been completed in Jesus, it means that a whole new phase of a divine plan. 
even though it's barely suspected, has now been launched, a phase in which the Torah, the law of God itself, would be seen in the whole new light. And so, like Elijah, was told to go back and get on with the job. Elijah was anointed a couple of new kings and prophets as well. Saul of Tarsus was to go back and get on with the prophetic task of announcing that Jesus of Nazareth was a true anointed king, the Messiah, the world's rightful sovereign. So Paul went back to Damascus, apparently confirmed in his understanding of himself as a prophet, fulfilling the ancient role of announcing God's truth and God's anointed king to Israel and the whole nation. Now, this is why Paul went to Arabia. There, he is rededicating himself. He, this is where he is completely reconfigured and reconfirmed himself in the story of Israel, in larger picture of the story of Israel, and then personally in his own life journey with God through Jesus Christ. You know, when you go through a hard time, where do you go back? How do you check yourself? Paul being a typical Jew or faithful Jew, he always saw his life in terms of a history or story of Israel. You know, when you look at your own life, whose story in the Bible does your life resemble to? Do you always have a certain, you know, from time to time, do you reflect a certain story of a Bible as your story? You know, that's the, that, why do you think we study the Bible? Just for fun? Just for another Sunday school lessons? It's a more than just, a, you know, or, you know, exciting, I mean, interesting story. Every story in the Bible is our story and my story. Because God who worked with everyone in the Bible is a God who works with everyone here and now, including me. I have several characters in the Bible whose life story is, seems like mine. And, uh, you know, Bible has a lot of uh, 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 life stories about different people who journeyed with God in different ways. Some of us, some people are journey like a lot. Do you remember Lot, the nephew of Abraham? He followed God with follow God with Abraham. But what happened? When he got wealthier, when he got greedy, he left Abraham. He went to the sin city, Sodom and Gomorrah. And we know the story. He started with the faith. He barely was rescued, and he died in shame. Whereas there is somebody like Jacob. Yes, Jacob is one that I, I often you know, identify myself with. Because like Jacob, do you know your pastor is a very uh, ambitious? I, you know, I used to be more ambitious than you can ever imagine. I'm an ambitious guy to the core. Growing up, a third child, I'm the last one in the Confucian family, or I say confused family. You know, I was always underestimated by everybody, age-wise and everything. So I had a disrepute. You know, I said, I'll show you, you guys, what I'm made of. 
I was very driven and ambitious. And then I was conniving on top of that. You know my story about stealing my you know, family's money. Yeah, it's a juicy story. Yeah, so my test, you know, I was very driven, ambitious. I was conniving like a Jacob who deceived his brother and also father. The Jacob the schemer, what happened to him? One day we'll study about the life of Jacob, but Jacob finally God graciously encountered him and wrestled with him and broke his hip, made him a lame. But uh, that limping, conniving, you know, despicable, ambitious guy, guess what? He became father of a nation, Israel. You know, this is a great story of a transformation. I'm not saying I'm great like you know, Israel, but I'm very much like a Jacob. But God has been breaking my hip bones over and over again until I leap and I'm only following him. And then, you know, a few times I followed him. Oh, my goodness. God is so gracious, brothers and sisters. God is so gracious. You know, Jacob is not the only one experience the, the rescue and salvation and, and grace of God. I experience God over and over again. So, when you go through a difficult time, whose story, whose, whose life story do you reflect? I want to, so let's go back to our story briefly and then let me, let, let's reflect on last time. That is this. So verse 22, Acts chapter you know, 9, verse 22, Saul grew more powerful, more and more powerful, and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by probing that Jesus is Messiah. After many days has gone by, there was conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. So until there was the death threat, imminent death threat that Saul could not ignore anymore. Saul preached. There's a new commission about Jesus Christ. In Damascus. Now, and so Saul, after this, all left for uh, Jerusalem. That story we'll come back to next week. We'll, we'll, we'll look at the next week. But let's reflect about this re-educated, redirected life of Saul in today in Paul's retreat to Damascus. One, I want to say this. Faith always follows with understanding. Christian, we have this traditional expression, faith-seeking understanding. We believe in order to understand. It's not that we understand the way we believe. We believe and then understanding comes. What does that mean? Faith is based on huge fact. It's so huge that it demands our focus and actually call for our understanding. Faith is based on God's invitation, which is too big, too good to believe. Faith is bigger than our mind can ever comprehend. So faith makes our mind bigger by stretching it with almost, initially it's almost like a, you know, incredulity or incredible claim. Faith has a lot of you know, incredible claims of God for us. So it's too good to believe. So we need to study. Is it really true that God loved me this much? And through that, 
our understanding get grows and bigger. So faith and understanding, it kind of a synergic, kind of dynamic in you know, a movement. Okay, let me explain uh, more uh, uh, simpler. You know, faith is like a delicious food that creates the addiction all over again. What is your favorite food? When you taste something delicious, what happened? What's a sign of you tasted something good? You want to have it over and over again. Isn't that true? Right? I love, you know, a uh, 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 fish. I like, uh, you know, a uh, uh, sushi. Yes. So, what do I do? Every time I have a chance, you know, when somebody takes me out and asks me where, all right then. You know, what's your budget? I look at the, their budget. Okay, then, you know, according to their budget, we go to this, whatever, you know, that. Sometimes I see Christians not interested in studying the Bible and uh, I wonder if they really encountered uh, a biblical God. Because the God of the Bible is so fascinating. God's love story in the Bible for us is incredible. How in the world do you don't want to study? Whenever I encounter you know, Christians who are not committed to the Bible study, I wonder whether they really tasted a real, real spiritual food. Just for your information, I'm so sorry, this is a pandemic, you cannot come to my house, but my wife Jamie is out in the, uh, out, out, out in the East Coast visiting her family. So guess what? This is my chance to eat all fatty food that I like. I'm going to even try new beer. I wish you know, I could invite you. You know, this is a chance. Just God's word is uh, tastier than honey and milk, according to Psalmist. So faith-seeking understanding. When you have a genuine faith in God, you want to really understand. You want to really, you're marble, and you want to dig in, and you want to really know more. And second thing about faith is this. Faith is not static, but dynamic. You know, faith is like a living organism. When I hear some people struggling with a spiritual stagnation during this pandemic or, you know, any other time, you know, I know why. Because faith is not a static thing. It's not even product that we can consume or store away or manipulate. Faith is a dynamic force that moves us. When we don't move in the right direction or in the right way, guess what? One thing I know about faith, faith stubbornly holds our life and suspends our joy and demands our attention. That's why some of us feel stagnant. Because Holy Spirit in you is telling you that you are stagnant. You need to pay attention to me. You need to really pay attention to some the, the most important thing in your life. Let me, let me repeat. Faith is a movement. Faith is not just an idea. It's more than an idea. Faith is a living orga organism. Faith is not the same thing old, over and over again. Faith is a rhythm of movement. It has a direction. It has a you know, direction of, a, of a faith. I mean, moving, mo movement. 
It requires a constant recalibration and readjustment. Just like a GPS that we relied on when we drive, when we follow God, I have to tell you, we constantly recalibrate. You know, it tells you, oh, you missed it, turn around, make a U-turn, go back, whatever. Faith is always redirecting, but the direction is always the same. Follow God with a trust and obedience more than your expectation and aspiration. God loves you, and His grace is a greater than your good plan for yourself. So follow God. Follow God. When your plan didn't work out, that doesn't mean that, uh, that your future is jeopardized. Now you can trust God. Now you can open your heart and mind, and even imagination, to surprise work of God. You know, it happened to me over and over again. I promised some people that I'll preach the best sermon uh, for a long time, the shortest sermon. It's already 36, 36 minutes. So I'll spare only four minutes here. I'll finish in three minutes. When I was in, in college, I didn't come to U.S. to be a pastor. I came to here to be a, a world-renowned economist or at least a billionaire. I want to have a fame and fortune and knowledge to leave my name in world history. How? Being a back then typical, very ethnocentric, you know, South Korean, you know, a descendant, I thought I'm going to unify the South you know, Korean Peninsula. And then I make a Korea superpower. And then much more, I'll invade Japan and then make them to pay. Because I heard, you know, my, 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 my mother's side was suffered a lot at the hands of Japanese. They're the horrible, you know, horrible occupiers. And then I met Christ. I still had the same dream. And then I know how much Christ loves each single one of us. And the Bible said, if a man forfeit his soul, what, gain, what, is, the, what, what is the gain? What, what is the gain? God placed us more than whole, uh, more importance on us than the whole world. So that's where I said, okay, there is something bigger than whatever the na nationalistic or pa patriotic dream. The kingdom of God is my ultimate kingdom, my ultimate, you know, a homeland. So I became a, I decided to be a pastor. But I decided to be not just any pastor. I will be a super pastor, you know. What is a super pastor? I'll get a PhD. I had a plan. You know, I was a 21 back then, so I'll finish the college with a magma cum laude. I go to seminary and I'll finish my PhD. By the time I was 30, then I go to South America and I will be the PhD missionary. That was my dream. And then what happened? When I graduated from seminary, I was, uh, you know, admitted to PhD program in the uh, Southern Baptist Seminary, Louisville, Kentucky. I was about to go, and then all of a sudden, my retired senior pastor called me and said, come to Palo Alto and work with me in a tiny little bit church, about less than 40 people, 10 people English speaking, about 30 people in Korean speaking. I didn't like Palo Alto. I don't like the Sanford people. They are too smart for me. And also, I don't like these smart people, you know, this very, well, whatever, the Sanford doesn't really, it's not me. So, ah, why? Then everybody around me, there, you have to go there. I reluctantly went there. My goodness, my little obedience was God paid, God blessed so much. Ten years I served that church. By the time I was living, I'm sorry, not so much of a number is important, but uh, we grew to almost uh, 
1500 finished the two building project. You know, you ask Yun and Youngju, they were there from the beginning to the end. Actually, Yun was the original founding member of that church. And then how did I left? I thought I'm going to die for that church. I was happy in that church. But in the eighth year, my beloved spiritual mentor and senior pastor, my boss, is taking church in the wrong direction. And I couldn't see myself going the same direction. And to me, that was God's call to leave the church. As an associate pastor, you don't argue. You just quietly leave the church. For two years, I cried. I left. People wonder why I left a you know, good church. And then I went to the wilderness called uh, uh, Princeton, New Jersey. I call wilderness because, you know, I did it well. I didn't get into PhD in the first year. And second year, everybody said, you have to have a, a, a sort of a agreement with a, a professor. That's how you do PhD, you know, dumb. So second year, I finally found a, past, a good, you know, a professor who wants to uh, mentor me. But by then I knew that I, you know, Princeton was not school for me. I want to do my PhD for the church, not just for academic, you know, uh, accolade. That's why I came to God's country, Texas. <laughs> I came to Waco, or some people call Waco. And from Waco, I came to Dallas, and here I am. Let me tell you. Every time God closed the door, God opened a new door. This is how I'm in the forest. Something that never envisioned, but God placed me here. So, point is this. It's good to have a zeal for God. Good to have ambition. But let me tell you, there is something far more greater far greater and higher and bigger and deeper than anything that you and I are ready to do, that is the love of God for us. When you follow God, even when it is a bumpy, even when God closes a door, you follow God. You hold Him. You hold on to Him. Because God is our good shepherd. God will lead us. God gave his life for us. So, dear brothers and sisters, I, especially those of you who somehow things didn't work out in the whatever last, this, you know, last one year, I want you to tell you, go to Arabia, just as Paul went to Arabia and recommissioned. I pray that you Today is a, your, your day of Arabia. Just like a Paul recast himself in God's vision, I pray you also have an Arabia experience. By the way, my personal email is Arabia Peak. Guess where I get that? Let's pray.